From the Wharton School of the University of Pennsylvania and Sirius XM, this is the Work and Life podcast, which explores how to create harmony among the different parts of life, work, home, community, and the private self, your mind, body, and spirit. The conversation you're about to hear was originally recorded on the Work and Life radio show on Sirius XM 111, business radio powered by Wharton. Here's your host, founding director of Wharton's Work-Life Integration Project and author of the bestseller, Total Leadership, Professor Stu Friedman. My guest on this episode of Work and Life is Scott Sonnenschein. He is a professor of management at Rice University, and his award-winning work has helped executives, entrepreneurs, professionals in many different settings achieve higher performance. His wonderful new book, Stretch, offers a groundbreaking take on the value of resourcefulness and creativity in the face of constraints. In this episode, we talk about what it means to have a stretch mindset, the advantages in embracing constraints, and how you can take advantage of constraints to ignite creativity. Scott, welcome to Work and Life. Uh, thank you, Stu, for having me. It is great to have you here. So Stretch is, is about building more prosperous organizations, rewarding careers, and meaningful lives by rethinking what it means to succeed. How did you arrive at studying what you call the seduction of chasing? What, what sparked your interest? Um, well, Stu, I spent a lot of time in Silicon Valley during the rise and the subsequent fall of the dot-com era, and it was a very exciting time to be out there, but there were also some really bizarre things happening. Uh, it was all about getting the most venture capital, mm-hmm. getting the highest amount of stock options, hiring the most employees, getting the most customers, even if they weren't profitable. The number of resources became a marker of people's success, and when you we say, lost sight of what the actual goal was. When you say the number of resources, you mean the accumulation of more? Right, the accumulation of uh, more money, mm-hmm. more people, uh, more customers, even if they weren't actually making any money. Uh, mm-hmm. This became a um, almost like an, ad- an addiction, because you looked around and you judged how you were doing as a person or how you were doing as an organization by looking at others. And it's easy to quantify these things. And if you saw someone with more, you try to uh, go, go on and get more, and you, you lost sight of what your ultimate goals were. Well, we do tend to make these kinds of social comparisons, right, where we, look, we measure our, our worth in some ways in the, in the social world uh, in, in comparison to the people around us. Right. And the problem, of course, is it's, it's like a treadmill. Uh, you, you can turn up the speed as you get more, uh, but you're not getting off that treadmill. You're only running faster but not getting any farther. So, so something happened. You, you saw a problem here and, and a way to think differently about it? Yeah. So, I mean, I, I kind of put that experience, uh, you know, on hold for a couple of years, and I, I went back to get a, a Ph.D. in management and organizations. Mm-hmm. And this experience was still living me. It was shaping. I do a lot of research on organizational change, and I was studying how organizations adapt. And one of the problems that you see with adaptation is when you become so focused on your business model around acquiring more resources, once those resources get cut off, uh, you have a hard time making shifts. Mm -hmm. So roughly 50% of uh, dot-com companies went out of business 
uh, during the boom. But what's interesting is those that survived, I mean, actually, maybe what's interesting is that 50% actually survived, but it was those that tended to survive took more of a, a slow growth model and focused on building a sustainable business for the long term as opposed to chasing the easy capital. Hmm. So as to so as to simply uh, demonstrate to the world that more that they have more uh, that was the mistake that too many were making is that right right and and you see that of course uh, you know being played out uh, not just with organizations but also uh, with people where mm-hmm. whether it be money the size of your office um, you know the location of your office these are things that you can readily share with people you can see them on Facebook and there's all these studies that look at how uh, those types of comparisons are really harmful to your well-being. Because no matter how much you have, there's always going to be someone who has more. Yes, that is definitely true. There's no one who has uh, a world in which someone else doesn't have more. So how do you get off of that? I, this seems to be the, the you know a topic that has uh, plagued humankind uh, since uh, since the dawn of consciousness, where people have been philosophizing about this, religious ideas and practices try to you know mitigate against this this human tendency to make these comparisons uh, what have you discovered in your research and what you write about in stretch that that can help people to to shift their mindset and perhaps take a different approach yeah so the most fundamental part of this is recognizing that the resources that you have are really flexible and expandable we get into this counting and accumulation focus when we think our resources are fixed. So we want to count what we already have and we overlook how we can use what's already around in very creative ways. So stretch is all about unlocking the creativity that I think every one of us is capable of having. Creativity is, you know, not just reserved for artistic works. It's what researchers call little c creativity, that everyday creativity that allows us to be resourceful with what we have to accomplish our goals. And once we recognize that there usually is abundance right in front of us, it's Mm -hmm. just about finding new uses of our resources and getting more creative with it, it makes us much less prone to feel like we need more to do more. This sounds like uh, the old adage of, uh, you know, living within your means. Is, Is it different than that? Well, it's, it's not just about living within your means because, you know, one of the overarching messages of stretch is you can really create and accomplish great things, but you have to start from the premise that what you have is a lot more valuable than you realize. Mm. And instead of focusing all of your efforts on, you know, building an apparatus, whether it be a business model or a career or a life around getting more resources, focus on those that you already have and try and use them in more productive ways. So you don't mean settling for no, what you've got? No, not settling at all. I mean, this is, this, is a, uh, this is research that shows that not only is it better for well-being, but it's also better for, for performance. For outcomes that yes. matter in terms of growth and, uh, uh, and, and making more of, of what you've got. So, so it's seeing what you've got and, 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 and imagining different uses for it. Can you give us a couple of examples? Yeah, so one of my favorite examples is the uh, director, Robert Rodriguez. So he's, uh, you know, famous for El Mariachi, and my kids love uh, Spy, the Spy Kids uh, trilogy, too. And if you look at the beginning of his career, I mean, he had almost nothing. He had no name recognition. He barely had any money uh, to make his film. And he realized, you know, one of his insights was if he tried to make a film like people with lots of other resources, he would, he would fail. I mean, he just he, he couldn't keep up with them, and he, he knew that. So instead, he looked around, and, you know, what do I have? Where can I actually shoot? I have a, a friend's ranch. Uh, you know, instead of uh, filming uh, with regular guns, I can, use, I can use fake guns. Instead of 
you know, trying to um, create lots of different cuts of the film. Mm -hmm. His film was very expensive. Uh, he created a style where his films were very fast moving because they required very minimal editing and very hmm. little film, and that's because he had the constraint. He just couldn't afford he couldn't afford the film. Mm -hmm. So he he looked around and said, you know what? I actually have quite a lot. I don't need several million dollars to make a movie. I just need you know under ten thousand dollars to make a movie, which is a lot less than it would cost to make a a brief trailer of a film. And he thought about putting these to use hmm. in much more creative ways. And as a result, even now he has so much more. He still largely sticks uh, to this style and. It gives his approach to filmmaking an edge over other mm. people because it's it's different, but it's different in a good way. Different because it's cheaper? Uh, it's different because it's cheaper, but it also has a faster pace and mm. kind of gives it a signature style. Interesting. So it's not so, only less expensive, but it's also better. So he, d he had to develop this style as a way to uh, deal with the, the relative lack of resources that he had. Is that right? Right. And then what's so remarkable is as now he finds himself with much more abundance. Mm-hmm he still relies on a similar style. I mean, you know, Spy Kids was a much more expensive movie to make than El Mariachi, but it was still significantly cheaper to make than similar types of films. So uh, is this a case of uh, necessity being the mother of invention? I think it's a case of necessity as a mother of invention, and then recognizing that when that necessity goes away, it's still important to put yourself in situations where you have this mindset that constraints aren't something we should shy away from. T say more about that, because most people, when they think of constraints, they think, oh, that's going to stop me from doing what I want. Right. And again, I think that goes to the chasing mentality, because we believe that we need more to do more. But with stretching, we recognize that constraints are very uh, enabling. They're empowering because they allow us to do things unconventionally. If you have a lot of money, uh, a lot of resources, a lot of people, a, a big budget, whatever, whatever those resources are, mm -hmm. you feel like you should do things the way that other people do them because there's an a, a accepted way of doing it. And actually, mm -hmm. there's psychology research that shows that you know, when you're in this state of abundance, you tend to follow the traditional way of doing things. So mm -hmm. if you can get into that mindset that you can think and embrace scarcity, you can begin to look at uh, what's around you in much, much different ways. And mm -hmm. Uh, there's a whole host of research that shows that getting into this mindset doesn't require scarcity. Simply thinking about scarcity or writing about scarcity uh, helps you get into this mindset. So, so even with abundance, it's important to embrace scarcity because it unlocks new potential in what's around you. What, what are the kinds of constraints that people typically have to wrestle with that they should see as gifts that ignite their creativity? Well, you know, the, the first thing you hear when your boss tells you no is you think it's an indictment of either you or your project. You know, no to that extra team member or no to, you know, more money. Because, again, it's the way that we judge things based off of, based off of the uh, amount of, of resources. So I actually like to recommend to people be proactive and ask for some of those constraints. You know, ask for one less person on your team. Ask for slightly less budget. And most people are quite surprised at how much more they can accomplish mm -hmm. uh, with, with less. Mm -hmm. Well, we certainly know that in the, uh, the dynamics of teams. Uh, one of the courses I teach here at Wharton is about leading teams. And one of, the, one of the things that's been observed many times in the literature is that smaller size is generally better than larger. You want a little bit less than what you think you need because that helps everyone stretch. 
Yeah, and what's also interesting, it's not also the quantity. You think about who the composition on a team is. There's some really interesting research that looks at, you know, our initial instinct is who do you want on your team? You want the most knowledgeable, the most expert type people. But actually, it, it turns out that's not usually the, the best answer. And some, some modeling, mathematical modeling, has actually showed you're better off picking a name out of a hat uh, than picking the so-called dream team. And there's a, a simple explanation for that. It's experts might have a lot of depth of knowledge, but one, they tend to share the same knowledge, so you're not getting that diversity that's important uh, for teams, and two, they tend to develop tunnel vision. So in, in some research uh, that looked at the scientific labs across you know, many, many different large companies in 10 or 11 different countries, uh, researchers looked at how close someone was, a scientist was, to the focal problem they were trying to solve. And they found, in fact, they found a very strong relationship between someone's expertise, mm -hmm. so let's say biologists, and the domain that the problem was in, chemistry, except that relationship was negative. In <laughs> other words, the chemists were more likely to solve the biology problems hmm. than the biologists themselves. So less knowledge is, uh, again, opening opportunity for more creative thinking in some form. Yes, yes, and in this case, it's, it's not just the, the depth of knowledge, it's also the diversity of knowledge that's really important. So we tend to say, you know, give me the most knowledgeable person here about this topic. Well, actually, you're better off with a bunch of people who actually don't know too much about that topic which is a, a creative way of thinking about constraints. So uh, what other kinds of constraints are there? One that we talk a lot about on this show is time. Uh, people, you know, when I ask people, audiences around the world, students, clients, <clears throat> what's the greatest challenge you face in creating a greater sense of harmony among the different parts of their lives? The first thing that people think of naturally is, if I had more time. So how does your theory of constraints being an enabler of creativity apply to someone who might say to you, you know, I, I just, if I had more time, I would be able to have more harmony and integration among the different parts of my life. Yeah, obviously time is, is really important. And if you, if you approach the mindset that you can be creative with how you use your time, it becomes a lot easier. So first, you know, get off the chasing mindset. It's hard to compare yourself as a working parent to someone who's a full-time parent. I mean, there's no, there's no question about it. And if you start playing that game, you're just going to create a lot of anxiety. But think about what you might bring to the table as someone who is spending their time in multiple contexts. What might you bring from the mm -hmm. workplace that can enrich your home life, mm -hmm. and then vice versa. What can you bring from your home life that might enrich your workplace? Yep. But we tend to think about these as very segregated things, and there's some research that looks at people who can integrate what are called their, their boundaries between these different domains, and that's one way of making your time. You can't change the fixed value of time, but you can certainly do more with the time that you already have, and the extent that you can get to this integration approach allows you to be more creative with what you do have. Yeah, I call that applying all your resources uh, by taking what you have, say, in your family or your community life and bringing that to bear on problems that you're trying to solve at work, for example. Uh, thinking about how you can creatively use what you've got in one part of your life to make the other parts better. This is Stu Friedman. You're listening to Work and Life, and I'm speaking with Scott Sonnenschein about his life and work. We talked a bit about his Silicon Valley history and how he learned about how the accumulation of resources 
as a marker of success is misguided and about the enabling and empowering value of constraints. What we talk about in the next part of our conversation is what you need to do to change from being a chaser to a stretcher and the, the value of constraints in producing improvisational change that makes things better. What what do people need to do to, to shift their thinking from being chasers to being stretchers? How do you do that? Yeah, well, the, I think the first is, is awareness. So that's, that's the simplest, to just recognize that there's an alternative. I think so deeply embedded in our culture is this idea of chasing that it's hard to realize that there's viable ways of of spending your spending your life that aren't chasing. So, you know, one is making people aware of of stretching. I think goes goes a long way at doing that. After you're aware of that, I think an important part is to just go spend time doing things that are a little differently. I like to give advice for people to just get outside. We tend to be so focused on spending our lives talking with the same people, doing the same things mm-hmm. that we have a hard time you know, kind of unlocking that innate creativity that we have. So, you know, go have lunch with someone who has your same job in another organization, but in a completely different industry. Great idea. And just kind of, you know, learn different different ways of approaching the mm-hmm. same problems that you have. And you'll realize that uh, instead of focusing on, well, I need more to get my job done, or I need more to, you know, uh, deal with my family life, you just realize that you can find new ways of doing what you already have just by spending time with other people who are approaching similar problems, but from a very different perspective. Mm-hmm. So that kind of benchmarking really shifts your thinking about what's possible and how you can use what you already have. A good friend of mine calls uh, her remodeling when she when she fixes up her home. The first thing that she does is, I shop in my own home. And so in other words, instead of going out to a store, she'll look around and say, what have I got here that I can use in a different way? Yeah, and that's the, that's the advice that you know, I, I literally give to my children when they're asking for another toy, but it's <laughs> metaphorically the advice that we can be doing at work, too. Instead of trying to you know, go out and find a, a new consultant or a new product or something, look inside your building first. There's a lot of hidden talent that mm-hmm. people don't know about, and just conversing with people and having, having those discussions, you'll realize that there's quite a lot more around you than you realize. Well, this is certainly something that uh, immigrants have forever had to do. They usually come with not very much money or resources, and they have to figure out creative ways to make new things happen. Uh, and uh, that's one of the ways in which uh, our country has grown great, hasn't it, is by the influence of people with few resources and a lot of need for being creative in order to just make a go of it. Right, and that's the, that's the advantage of, of having immigrants around is they are some of the most resourceful people, and they teach us an important lesson because mm-hmm. even though we might be in better positions as them, the creativity they're able to unlock with their resources can benefit us no matter how much or how little we have. Uh, let's keep going on, on what people can do. What have you seen as some of the uh, best and easiest ways to begin thinking and acting uh, in this way and, and, and getting off the chaser treadmill? Right. Another piece of advice I like to give people is to stop focusing so much on planning. And this is something that's really seductive when we have a lot of time and a lot of resources. 
I like to do this little exercise with my students where I have them play what's called the yes and game. And they, mm-hmm. they come in front of the room and they have to get into a circle and they have to just keep, keep talking, keep the action going and get more comfortable. But that's really uncomfortable for a lot of people because we're so used to scripted performances. We're worried about impressing people and we think we need to heavily plan out all of our performances. Mm-hmm. But it turns out that we can be a lot more flexible and creative when we throw out the plan. So what does yes and do? How does, it, how does that work? Oh, so very simple. So you call on, you know, maybe five or six people. They're in a circle. They're facing each other. And very simple rule, someone just throws out an idea, and you just have to say yes and and try and build on those ideas. Mm-hmm. So it builds, it builds a lot of trust. It also allows people to be very creative and flexible. But one of the hidden values of an exercise like this, it really teaches the point of listening. Because mm-hmm. one of the problems with planning, and you see this in, in meeting all the time, meetings all the time, is when you're busy planning your performances, you're not listening to people around you. Of course. So there's research that shows as much as nine seconds before it's your turn to speak and as much as nine seconds after it's your time to speak, you completely shut out. And I learned this firsthand when I, when I started teaching at Rice. Wait, what did you just say? Oh, you have just kidding. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Very good, Stu. Sorry. Sorry, people. You got, you got me there. No, you no. You got me there. But, uh, <laughs> but I, I, yeah, I, learned this, I learned this at Rice. I was, I was, teaching, I was f- teaching my first course here, and mm-hmm. I'd have a, a whole bunch of hands go up in the, in the room. I guess that's what happens when, you, when you're great for participation. And so I'd, I'd set a speaking order, just like you do at meetings, where you go around the table yeah. and say, you know, you're going to go, you're going to go, you're going to go, or you speak by rank or whatever mm-hmm. it is. And mm-hmm. I noticed, you know, someone would, someone would go, and they would literally just repeat what the person next to them had said. Because they weren't listening. And they weren't listening. Yeah. And then I, you know, I found all this research on what's called the next-in-line effect, which shows mm-hmm. the uh, idea that we literally just shut down our minds. And so planning uh, prevents us from listening, and listening is so important for learning, and it's hard to... Uh, and engaging and building yeah. trust and relationships. It's, it's what improvisational actors do and try to teach us, right? Right, absolutely. You've got to build off of what you've been given and work with that. Uh, so let's say you're a working parent. You, you, we started talking a little bit about this earlier. Any ideas about uh, what you know, I mean, we hear all the time from people on the show about how to be more creative uh, as a working parent to get more availability of, of your attention to the people who matter most to you when they need you? Uh, any thoughts or ideas about what working parents ought to think about in terms of stretching? Yeah, well, it's, again, I'd focus less on the quantity of the time and the quality of the time. Mm-hmm. 15 minutes of quality time versus 45 minutes at the table where your children are on the iPads and you're on your iPhone. I mean, they're just such different experiences. So, you know, I would start with that, and then I would look at ways mm-hmm. to harness the natural creativity that children have. There's been studies that look at how creative children are with their resources, and over time they get socialized into doing things the conventional ways. Hmm. So if you can cultivate in your children early on that, you know, it's okay to use things in, in different ways, and uh, I think they'll, they'll live much more productive lives. But so much of our society is built off of socialization, and we socialize people into doing things in very particular ways. And obviously we want people to follow norms and rules and all that stuff is good, but we also want them to hold on to that ability to be a little different. To, and, and to see an object or, or an experience and to somehow interpret it and use it in a way that is different than they have in the past or that others might have. 
Right. So, you know, you, you want a new toy? No, I'm not going to get you a new toy. Go back into your closet and find three things that you have and play with them in ways you've never played with them before. Cool. And that usually uh, not only leads to a really nice afternoon, it also teaches them that they have a lot right in front of them. It's just about how they use it. They can shop in their own home, as my good friend likes to say. Right. Uh what, what's the last word, Scott? What do you want to make sure our listeners understand about uh, stretch and the, the core message that they can take away in thinking about how to be more mindful about what's possible with what they have? Stop focusing on acquiring resources. Learn better the work with you have because you actually have more than you realize. Don't shy away from constraints and mm-hmm. try and mix things up for a change. When was the last time you did that? Uh, I try and do that every day, Stu, whether it's uh, you know, how I uh, go about my hourly walk, uh, you know, taking a different route to do things in uh, slightly different ways to how I interact with my children. I mean, it's, uh, it's not always easy, uh, but it's something I strive to do every day. Scott, Son and Shine, it's been such a pleasure to speak with you. Thanks so much for joining us today. Great. Thank you, Stu, for having me. This is Stu Friedman. You've been listening to Work and Life, my conversation with the remarkable Scott Sonnenschein and his great new book, Stretch. We talked about what it takes to move from a chaser to a stretcher mindset and how important it is to do that. And the steps that you can take to get there, of course, the first one is just being aware of what your mindset is and then doing things just a bit differently trying to work within the constraints of what you've got gathering data feedback uh, to see what works what doesn't and just continually uh, revising updating what's possible given the limits of what you've got there's a lot of power that can be unleashed by embracing constraints. And indeed, you have more than you realize. That's what Sun and Shine's research teaches us. So thank you for listening. I hope you got some good ideas from this conversation. We'd love for you to uh, rate and review this podcast, Work and Life, uh, with Stu Friedman on iTunes or wherever you, you, uh, you listen to this, to this podcast. Share it with your friends. And tune in next time for another conversation on work and life. Thanks for listening to this episode of Work and Life. This conversation was originally recorded on my weekly radio show on Sirius XM 111, Business Radio Powered by Wharton. Tune in for live broadcasts of Work and Life on Tuesdays at 7 p.m. Eastern. For more about today's guest, And about previous guests, check out our blog at workandlifepodcast.com. Join the conversation by tweeting at Stu Friedman. And for more ideas and tools for creating harmony among the different parts of life, check out our website, totalleadership.org, and my book, Total Leadership, Be a Better Leader, Have a Richer Life. If you like this podcast, please subscribe and share it with your friends, family, and co-workers. Until next time, I'm your host, Stu Friedman, and I thank you for joining me. <music>